This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Happy holidays and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. We got episode 257 today, entitled, How Proverbs Chapter 3 Influenced New Testament Christology. We had a lot of good feedback from last week's episode where we dove into the book of Proverbs, specifically chapter 1, and showed the various ways in which the portrayal of God's wisdom, that is, personified wisdom, woman wisdom, lady wisdom, actually influenced and impacted the writers of the New Testament and their portrayals of Jesus Christ. And not just their portrayals, but even Jesus' own self-understanding and self-evaluation. So this week we'll move into the next significant passage in the book of Proverbs that discusses personified wisdom, and that is Proverbs chapter 3. So here are some questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, how is God's wisdom, which was personified in chapter 1, illustrated in chapter 3? Is there any change, or is the depiction consistent? Second, in what ways does the wisdom of God function in the act of creation, and how does wisdom relate to the Creator God? This is a very important question. And lastly, how did the New Testament authors draw upon Proverbs chapter 3 specifically in their portrayals of Jesus Christ? And which New Testament author seems to have been impacted by Proverbs chapter 3 the most? The answer might surprise you. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is a close look at the figure of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 3. So there's a lengthy section in Proverbs chapter 3. It's not the entire chapter, but a lengthy section in which personified wisdom is illustrated and characterized. And this is Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 13. We'll go all the way down to, let's say, verse 23. So let's begin. Chapter 3, verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. Yahweh, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. My son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. 
Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 23. There's a lot of really interesting and fascinating things that are said here about the figure of wisdom. Now, what are some things that we can point out before we actually move into the New Testament? Well, first, we can see that wisdom is basically another way of talking about the understanding that God offers. You can see that in verse 13 with the parallelism. The person who finds wisdom is the person who gains understanding. Wisdom and understanding are parallel terms. And we can see something very similar in verse 21, to where the author tells his son to keep sound wisdom and discretion. Sound wisdom and discretion are very similar terms. So wisdom in and of itself is not a conscious person. It's not an actual female figure that is alongside Yahweh in heaven. It is just God's wisdom, God's wise interactions. It's God's wise understanding and his wise instructions. This is how the author can tell the reader to take God's wisdom, to keep it, to search for it, to hold it fast, to take hold of this wisdom, and to maintain it. This means to maintain the wise instructions and the ways of God. However, it's quite clear that wisdom is personified. It's personified as a female figure because the Hebrew noun for wisdom, chokmah, is a feminine noun. And so when you personify a feminine noun, you're going to get a female figure. That is how it works. Now we can see that the reader is supposed to value wisdom greater than monetary wealth. Wisdom is greater than silver and gold and jewels. And then the author goes on and says that nothing you desire actually compares with her. So she is the most important thing that the son is able to long for and desire. And of course, this would encourage them to long for God's instruction and God's commandments, God's wise ways of living. Now we can see that personification of wisdom is going to depict her possessing a body. She's going to possess a right hand and a left hand. In her right hand is long life. And this, of course, means that she's able to offer life to those who take hold of her. In her left hand are riches and honor. Now, a very important point that we're going to revisit later is the fact that this word honor in Hebrew, the word kavod, is translated in the Greek as the word voksa, which means glory. So the Septuagint translator understood this reference to honor as glory. So it's important to understand that Lady Wisdom possesses glory. She possesses riches and glory. Verse 17 indicates that her ways are pleasant ways. And it's not simply a casual way of saying her way as in like her opinions. The particular way that's being described here is an actual path. It's a road. And the parallelism makes this quite clear. Her ways are paralleled with the phrase her paths. So her ways are roads. They are paths. 
that's very specific. And it indicates that the way of life that someone would walk according to her instructions is understood as a path. They're walking along a path. That's how the metaphor of walking a life that is godly draws upon the metaphors of the path and the way, and it indicates a daily orientation of one's entire activity. She's also described as a tree of life. This is, again, indicating that she offers life at the most fundamental level. Of course, you've already seen that long life is in her right hand, but she is also described as a tree of life. And this is something that is promised to those who actually take hold of her. The tree of life that, according to Genesis chapter 3, is something that has been barred from humanity, is now made available, not by traveling to Eden, but by finding wisdom, God's wise instructions and interactions with his creation. And then we actually see how wisdom relates to the creator God. And verses 19 and 20 are extremely important for understanding the function of wisdom in creation. It says that Yahweh, by wisdom, found in the earth. And there are some parallel lines to this. So God founded the earth with his wisdom. And with understanding, he established the heavens. It's quite clear that he is the creator. He established the heavens. Verse 20 by his knowledge, the deeps were broken up. So we can see the passive being used there because it indicates that not that knowledge is actually breaking up the deeps, it is actually God doing it. But it indicates it in the passive. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up, namely Yahweh broke up the deeps. So what we're seeing here, and this is very important, is that Yahweh is the creator and he is the sole creator. Yahweh founded the earth. Yahweh established the heavens. Yahweh broke up the deeps. So we have the earth, the heavens, and the waters. And then at the end of verse 20, we have the skies dripping with dew. But Yahweh did all of these acts of creation by using his wisdom. Yahweh with his wisdom, or in the Greek, Yahweh in his wisdom, founded the earth. So wisdom is not the creator. Yahweh is the creator, but Yahweh used wisdom as this agent through which he actually enacted all these feats of creation. Now, what does it mean for Yahweh to found the earth with wisdom? What it means is that the creation of the world, the earth, the heavens, and the deeps, and the sky, if they were made through the agency of wisdom, that means that God has wisely ordered his creation. His creation is going to demonstrate a wise arrangement. It is good. It is something that is ordered. It is not chaotic. And if God is able to function as a creator and to make all things with his wisdom, then that means that this wisdom is certainly very important. If Yahweh is using this wisdom, to function at the most powerful level, at the highest level, that is, creating things, then certainly wisdom is something that is worthy for the reader to long for, to seek after, to desire, to take hold of, 
and to follow. So Yahweh is the creator. Wisdom is not the creator. But we can also see here again that wisdom, even though it's personified in this passage, is still not a conscious female figure alongside God because wisdom is paralleled with the lines understanding and knowledge. God's wisdom is his understanding and his knowledge. It's very important. Now, the author goes and encourages his son to maintain sound wisdom and discretion because they will be life for your soul, adornment to your neck, and there is a promise of security in the way that the son walks. In fact, there is a promise that their foot will not stumble. And this is important. We've already seen that the ways of wisdom are pleasant ways. They are paths of peace. And so the person that takes hold of wisdom and obeys wisdom's instruction is promised here security in the way that they walk and a lack of stumbling for their feet. So there's a lot of really interesting things that are said here about God's wisdom, which is personified as a female figure, but that personification, again, is not in reference to an actual female person as if there were two persons up there in heaven. There's only one person involved in creation, and that is Yahweh alone. Yahweh is the creator, and the writer is very careful to indicate that while God used his wisdom as the agent of creation, wisdom did not create anything. Yahweh is the creator, but Yahweh used his understanding, his wise instruction, his wise knowledge in order to order and fashion the heavens and the earth. Naturally, human beings would also be part of this creation. Human beings were created by Yahweh, but through God's wisdom. Now, when we reflect on all these passages, we can definitely look into the New Testament and we can see many New Testament writers drawing on these themes that'll move us to our second point. Point number two, the influence of Proverbs chapter three on the New Testament writers. So I came up with six important points on this matter, six ways in which the portrayal of God's wisdom, specifically in the third chapter of Proverbs, has impacted and influenced Jesus Christ in his own self-understanding, and of course, the ways that the New Testament writers portray Jesus, and that's very important. The first one, I think, is arguably the most controversial among biblical Unitarians, but I think the point actually stands. And a lot of New Testament scholars have actually made this point. And this is the first point, which is that personified wisdom is the agent of God's creation. We saw this in chapter 3, verse 19 through 20. But what's interesting is that New Testament writers, at least four passages in particular, portray God as the creator, but God creating through an agent. And since the New Testament writers are in agreement that if you want to find wisdom right now, you need to look to Jesus. You don't look at the law. You don't look at God's instructions that he gave to Moses. You look and you find Jesus. Jesus now is the climax of God's wisdom. So things that were said about God's wisdom in the Old Testament are now being said about Jesus because Jesus embodies God's wisdom in the present. And so we have these passages in which God 
is the creator, but God creates through an agent, and that agent is either wisdom or that agent is Jesus. Not that Jesus was actually the wisdom up there in the Old Testament, but that now the writers are understanding Jesus as the current embodiment, the climax and the locus of God's wisdom in light of his death and resurrection and ascension. So let's take, for example, John chapter 1, verse 3, which involves the Logos, but God's word, God's Logos, that is his personified utterance, his personified speech, through which he created the heavens and the earth. You can see that, obviously, in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light. So God speaks, uses his word. But, of course, that parallels the functions of God's wisdom. God creating the world through his word, God creating all things with his word, which is what John 1.3 says, would actually be understood as God creating all things with his wisdom. So John 1.3 says about God's word that all things came into being through him, that is, through the personified word. But that parallels what was said about God's wisdom, where God made all things through his wisdom in Proverbs 3, 19 through 20. And the things that are said about God's word in John chapter 1 all have parallels with things that were said about God's wisdom. That's very important. And readers of the Gospel of John, the earliest readers, would have made that connection. Things that are said about God's word are also intended to be understood in light of God's wisdom. So God made all things through his word, and of course God made all things through his wisdom. Something similar is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Now, 1 Corinthians is quite explicit that Jesus is the wisdom of God. It's said multiple times in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 10 that draws upon the rock that followed the Israelites, and that rock was understood in terms of God's wisdom in relevant Jewish literature. So 1 Corinthians has made quite an attempt to inform the readers that Jesus is now the fullest embodiment of God's wisdom. But in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, For us we have one God, the Father, out of whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. So there in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, we have, just like we saw in Proverbs 3, 19 through 20, that there's one creator, that's one God, that one God, which in Proverbs 3, 19 is Yahweh, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yahweh is identified as the Father, the Father alone. The Father, Yahweh, created all things. But while Proverbs chapter 3 indicates that God made all things through his wisdom, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 sees Jesus as the embodiment of wisdom. And it says that through the one Lord Jesus Christ, all things were made. So the Father is the creator of all things. But it is through wisdom, but since wisdom is now understood as being found in Jesus, the writer can say that the Father created all things through the one Lord Jesus, because it is understood in light of Paul's wisdom Christology. The same thing we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The entire Colossian hymn draws upon wisdom themes, in fact, 
wisdom being identified with Jesus is sprinkled throughout the entirety of the letter to the Colossians. There are quite a few references to make that point to the readers. But in Colossians 1.15, it says, In him all things were made. In him all things were made. Just like saying, in wisdom, God created all things. It doesn't say that Jesus is the creator. It says that all things were made, using the divine passive, indicating that God created all things, but God created all things in his wisdom or with his wisdom. The same Greek preposition that we see in the Greek translation of Proverbs 3.19, where God, in his wisdom, made all things. But Colossians 1, seeing Jesus as the locus of God's wisdom, is going to say, not just in wisdom all things were made, but in him all things were made, because Jesus is now the embodiment and the locus of God's wisdom. Again, God is the creator, but God creates through an agent. That agent is wisdom, and Jesus is now the embodiment of wisdom. And that's how they understand these passages. Same thing we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, where God is the creator, and he made the world through his son. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. The son functions as the agent there, but Hebrews chapter 1 has a variety of references, specifically verse 3, which describes Jesus in terms of God's wisdom. Hebrews 1 verse 3 indicates that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, a direct reference to personified wisdom in Wisdom of Solomon chapter 7. And there are a variety of other places to which Hebrews chapter 1 portrays Jesus in terms of God's wisdom. But the first clue, of course, is that God is the creator and God creates through an agent. We know that agent is wisdom. But now, since Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom, Hebrews is able to say that God created through the Son. Again, not that the Son was actually the agent of creation, but the Son now is understood as the locus of God's wisdom. So there's four passages in the New Testament to where God is a creator, God creates through an agent, but these writers possess what is called a wisdom Christology. They are taking the things that are said about wisdom and they're now applying them to Jesus. They are not looking at Jesus and saying Jesus is the person that was back there in the Old Testament because wisdom in Proverbs chapter 3 is not a conscious person. Wisdom is a personification. And to say that Jesus is a female figure would be very strange and odd indeed. So that's the first point. The second point is that wisdom offers life, and Jesus, quite clearly, is the one who offers life, both in the present and he offers eternal life, the life of the age to come, which is bodily resurrection life. So we saw wisdom on multiple occasions possessing long life in her right hand, and also the author telling his son that if he keeps sound wisdom, that it will be life to your soul. That, of course, indicates that the soul is not immortal. If the soul requires life, then the soul itself is mortal. That's just a tangent, but couldn't help the opportunity to make that particular point. But wisdom is the one that offers life, and Jesus is clearly the one that is offering life in the Gospels. And this is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in the Gospel of John, the life that Jesus offers is both in the present and in the future. 
Take a passage like John 3.16, the one who believes in the Son will not perish, but he will have, in the present tense, the life of the age to come. That is a promise of life in the present. That, of course, is the new life in Christ. That is repentant life, life in the new covenant. That is life involving salvation in the present. And, of course, Jesus does promise eternal life in the future. That is resurrection life. That is bodily resurrection life, meaning that someone is going to be raised from the dead in a new resurrection body. You can see that in John 5, 28 through 29, where Jesus promises that there is an hour coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice. They will come forth, some to a resurrection of life, others to a resurrection of judgment. So wisdom offers life, and Jesus quite clearly, as the embodiment of wisdom, is also offering life. The third point is that wisdom, as I pointed out, possesses glory in her left hand. She possesses glory. And there are a variety of passages that indicates that wisdom has glory. She possesses the glory of God. Now, in Proverbs chapter 3, it talks about wisdom who possesses glory. And wisdom, of course, is quite ancient because wisdom was the personified agent of the original creation. But then we have a passage in John 17, verse 5, where Jesus, who's clearly the embodiment of God's wisdom, talks about the glory that he had before the world was. And this has been a puzzling passage for a lot of people, but once we understand that the Gospel of John, like many other New Testament writers, portrays Jesus in terms of God's wisdom, then things that were formerly said about God's wisdom can now be said about Jesus. Jesus can speak about possessing this wisdom that is ancient in the past and was associated with the time of creation because wisdom in the Old Testament possesses this glory. And so I think the best way to interpret John 17 verse 5 is to see Jesus looking back and seeing himself as the extension of the wisdom of God and seeing all the things that were said about wisdom particularly in the book of Proverbs, but for our study today, Proverbs chapter 3, now apply to him. This does not mean that Jesus consciously pre-existed his birth, because wisdom is not a conscious female person. Wisdom is a personification. But the things that were said about wisdom are now being attributed by the New Testament authors to Jesus. And Jesus himself seems to possess a self-understanding in which he is the embodiment of personified wisdom. That's our third point. The fourth point, her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. But Jesus claims quite definitively in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. The disciples want to know the way. How do we find the way to God? Jesus says definitively that I am the way. I am this path. I am the road. Again, it's a word for a road or a path. Jesus is claiming quite definitively. In fact, in John 14, verse 6, there is the use of the first-person pronoun that is intensive. He's not saying, I am the way. He's using emphasis there on the first person. I 
am the way. Well, who was associated with the correct way of God in the Old Testament? Well, that's quite clearly wisdom. Jesus sees himself as the embodiment of wisdom. You can't come to the Father unless you go through Jesus. Jesus functioned as the agent of God's life-giving purposes because the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the embodiment of God's life-giving purposes. In the Old Testament, how do you get to God's life? Well, you get it by going through wisdom. That's quite clear in Proverbs chapter 3. That's our fourth point. Here's our fifth point. Possessing wisdom will allow the righteous person to walk securely. We saw this at the end of Proverbs 3. The person who takes hold of wisdom and holds her fast will walk securely and his feet will not stumble. And Jesus speaks about those who follow him and the fact that they will walk securely and they're not going to trip and fall. So in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Something similar is said by Jesus in John 11, verse 9. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. And again, in John 12, 35, walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. So three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus encourages his followers to take hold of his light, to walk in that light, which means to live according to following Jesus and his teachings and his precepts, which is part of believing in Jesus. And he promises that those who do so will not stumble. They will actually know where they're going. They're not going to walk in darkness. So Jesus again speaks as if he is Lady Wisdom. The possession of wisdom means that you will walk without stumbling and that you will be walking on these paths of peace. And Jesus, of course, being the way, is going to encourage people in how they are to walk. Both of those themes, the way and a path of walking in which you will not stumble, were formally said hundreds of years before Jesus was even born by God's personified wisdom. And lastly, as we can see, point number six, it's quite clear that Jesus is the embodiment of personified wisdom. New Testament authors want to see the things that were said about God's wisdom now being true and found in Jesus, not in the law of Moses. If you want to find God's wisdom, if you're a reader of the book of Proverbs and you're interested in the wisdom that it offers, you find it now by finding Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom. He speaks by saying the things that wisdom said, and the New Testament authors are portraying, illustrating, characterizing, and shaping Jesus in terms of the descriptions that were said about God's wisdom in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Job, in the book of Psalms, and a variety of other Jewish wisdom texts. So there you have it, six ways in which the portrayal of God's personified wisdom influenced the writers of the New Testament and influenced Jesus himself. I do think it's interesting, by the way, that the author that seems to have been impacted the most by 
Proverbs chapter 3 is actually the Gospel of John, which a lot of biblical Unitarians don't associate with wisdom Christology, but I'm going to suggest to you that we need to reconsider that position because there are quite a number of things that are said about Jesus in the Gospel of John that have direct parallels with the portrayal of God's wisdom in books like the book of Proverbs. And this is great because it indicates that any sort of pre-existence that's attributed to Jesus is not a conscious, real, literal pre-existence. Because wisdom in the book of Proverbs is not an actual person. Wisdom is a personification. And to say that Jesus pre-existed as a personification is not to say that Jesus consciously pre-existed his birth. So there you have it. That is the influence of Proverbs 3 on the New Testament writers. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we look at the most controversial chapter involving wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and that is Proverbs chapter 8. Please look forward to our next episode. It'll be the first episode of 2023. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the non-negotiable truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a financial donation, you can check out the description of this podcast for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care and Happy New Year.